Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. With April being IBS Awareness Month, today I am joined by my wonderful guest, Kirsten Jackson, who is also known as the IBS Dietitian on Instagram, and she is a consultant registered dietitian in Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Kirsten is a fully trained low FODMAP dietitian and has incorporated this diet into her methods for optimal results with her clients. Also, before being a dietitian, Kirsten herself suffered with IBS, so she's coming at it from a personal perspective too. Today, we're going to dig into what IBS is, how one can get a diagnosis, management of their symptoms, and tips for all of us to basically manage our diet and digestion effectively. Kirsten, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me on. I am doing great and I'm very excited the opportunity just to get this information out to so many people that need it. Uh, I feel like IBS is one of those things, you always sort of hear about it. A lot of people say that they have it, but maybe a lot of people don't quite know what it even is. So I thought we could start by really digging into a definition of IBS, how it presents itself in people and how one would go about, uh, you know, diagnosing it. Yeah, fantastic. Because I think we do use IBS quite loosely sometimes, which is not the correct way, because then when you actually have IBS, it makes you feel a little bit not validated, really, because it's a real condition with a real definition. Um, and what IBS is or irritable bowel syndrome is it's known as a disorder of what we call the gut brain access. So the gut-brain access, to try and simplify as much as possible because it is really complicated when you look into it, is basically how the gut and the brain talk to each other. So they do this through um, a combination of hormonal changes, the nervous system as well, various different chemicals in that pathway. So we know, for instance, um, there's lots of research around you know, depression or anxiety and this can impact the gut. But also now we're finding that the gut can actually impact how we feel. So somewhere in those communications, um, it's broken or it's not functioning how it should do. And as a result of this, people end up with things like constipation, loose stools, stomach pain, um, bloating, excess gas, which is obviously quite embarrassing. It's not something that we normally talk about, even though we should be breaking down those taboo kind of boundaries as such. And you just listed those symptoms there. Are those the most common symptoms that people tend to suffer from? So it's so hard, isn't it? Like bloating is quite a common symptom, regardless of whether you maybe have an IBS diagnosis or not. You know, I know sometimes if I have, like I had spaghetti bolognese for dinner last night, and sometimes I find pasta can do that for me. But 
you know, I still enjoy it. But I think being able to be really specific about uh, symptoms really being attributed to IBS versus just things that everyone can suffer from is quite hard. Yeah, and I think that's important as well. But because we don't talk about it very often, you think, well, what is normal, what isn't? And actual bloating in general is very normal. So if we have a particularly maybe a larger meal than normal, we will feel bloated. Um, and as in part of a normal digestive system, we produce gas in that kind of breakdown of certain foods, especially carb- certain carbohydrates like wheat pasta breads that's very normal if we have a maybe a slightly larger portion as well that you might feel a bit bloated but where IBS differs is that this these symptoms are are much more regular so they're happening all the time um, and I know that's very hard to define because you will say well what do you mean all the time Kirsten but it's not just oh every time I have pasta it's, it's every single day we're suffering with these symptoms it's maybe changing what we're doing day to day um, so it's becoming more significant um, but bloating is not the only symptom of IBS. Um, so it has to involve a change in bowels as well. So you might have bloating or you might have pain or discomfort, but that also has to be related to either constipation or loose stools or a change in bowel habits. So it's not just one symptom, it, it's a collection of symptoms. And it's quite important as well to realize that there are some symptoms that people report that aren't anything to do with IBS. So things like acid reflux or people will say, is my back pain related? No. Um, and it's important still to be going to the doctors, you know, in in those scenarios as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, actually one of my questions was in terms of the symptoms being quite broad and quite, in some cases, quite nonspecific. I, um, you know, for example, with bloating or sometimes having a change in bowel habits, like I guess it's hard to, a lot of people sort of just attribute that to their diet. But I think it's obviously really important to get across that um, there are some things that really cause us to I guess go and seek help and go to it go to our GP and 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 really go down that route first to, to write off anything sinister and I guess with IBS some people can kind of just write it off as being like oh it's just my IBS but actually there are certain things that that would make I'm I'm sure someone like you go oh actually no go and get checked first make sure that you can sort of rule out other things first before you might attribute it to something like IBS so when it comes to going down that route um what would you say are the signs that you tend to uh, flag as being reasons to go to, your, to see your GP? Yeah, so any digestive symptoms at all. So I'm not saying if you have, you know, a big din- one big dinner and have bloating, you should go to your GP. But if it's um, any symptoms at all, even over a week, say you start having loose stools or you're getting stomach pain, um, I wouldn't even be thinking at that stage, oh, it might be IBS because yes, it might be, but it also might be inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease or n- a number of other digestive conditions and we can never, ever use symptoms alone to diagnose. So we always have to go to the doctors who will do some routine tests, which involve blood tests and also a stool tests just to rule out other conditions. And then at that stage, along with your symptoms, depending on how long you've been having them for, um, then you will then be diagnosed with IBS. And can you talk to me a little bit about that diagnosis process? I know that some people can really struggle to get an IBS diagnosis. How does someone go about finding out if their symptoms are actually IBS? What's the kind of process? Yeah, so it's quite surprising to still hear that people are, um, you know, struggling to get the diagnosis. But then I talk to people and I start to find out why. Because from a point of view from a health professional such as myself, we look at the guidelines and these guidelines have been here for years and years. And it's very simple. We just need to be seeing our doctors and it's in black and white in medical guidelines that you should be getting routine tests done. And we have a definition of IBS that's, again, in black and white. It's been here for a long time now. 
Um, and you don't need to be going to see a gastroenterologist or any other speciality. You just need to see your GP. However, what seems to be happening and is maybe due to lack of knowledge or maybe GP pressures where we're not seeing a GP, maybe we've seen um, a practitioner. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's different reasons and different scenarios. People are maybe going um, and they're being told things like, oh, it's probably stress or um, they might have some blood tests done, but they're not the right ones or they, they just don't seem to be getting taken seriously for some some reason. So what I would say to you is there is um, a guideline, which is a medical guideline. Anyone can access it for free called NICE. It's N-I-C-E. Just put into Google NICE IBS and it will show you in there in black and white the tests that you need. Um, and you can phone up even and speak to the GP sur- um, surgery and ask, have you had those done? Because sometimes it is confusing about what you have and haven't, ha- haven't had done. Um, and if not, then you can go in with that information to your doctor, which can make you feel a little bit more empowered um, to say, actually, this is here in the medical guidelines and I need it. I need to get it done. So it, this is not a big thing. It's not a, a complicated condition for them to diagnose um, and it shouldn't be the case. But it is unfortunately seems to be, I don't know, being made more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah. And I guess the journey then from someone receiving an IBS diagnosis, say someone gets that diagnosis. I guess if you're seeing your GP and not someone who's a little bit more specialized, which I totally understand why, and obviously um, we have to think about what's accessible to most people, but then the journey of being able to actually treat the the IBS is, is I guess, a little bit more of a complicated one. I know that you uh, recommend a FODMAP diet, but I also know that this is something that can only really be done when working directly with sort of a, a specialist dietitian or someone who who really specializes in that space. So what advice do you have for people when it comes to say you've got an IBS diagnosis? What are the next steps that they should be taking? Yeah. So once you've got an IBS diagnosis, this is the point where I think most people really struggle with because they kind of get told, you know, oh, good news, your blood test came back normal. And you have that initial sort of great because obviously we don't want our blood test to throw up other health conditions. But then you're sort of left to your own devices or what do you do with this IBS? Um, and it really is a postcode lottery in terms of services that are available on the NHS. But the next step for anybody with irritable bowel syndrome is to see a registered dietitian. Um, and but what I would say is you might have access through your doctor, so it's worth asking. Or it could be that you have the ability to pay privately, and we're all in very different situations. So I'm not presuming that anyone does have that ability, but just to make you aware, it is available to for that as well. Some people have health insurance as well. Um, and there are now a, quite a few services online um, where we are doing not just one-to-one, but we're doing things like you know group sessions to try and bring the cost down to guide you. Because the problem with um, things like the low FODMAP diet, which a lot of people with IBS will already know because you only have to Google low you know, IBS diet and that's what comes up straight away, um, is, is a quite a complicated process. So the low FODMAP diet for anyone who hasn't heard of this is a diet which is low in fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. So very sciencey terms, but they are various different carbohydrates found in various different foods. Um, and basically when someone with IBS eats them, they produce too much gas and they draw in a lot of water and they can cause these symptoms of a pain bloating. So we use a diet process. It's not a long term diet, but we use part of this um, concept to diagnose what which one of those carbohydrates they're actually um, reacting to. So when you first come across this diet, it looks very much like, a oh, that can't be difficult. All I need to do is download this app, look at this diet sheet and avoid these foods. Now that in itself can throw up quite a few problems because actually there's quite a few restrictions. You can end up causing nutritional deficiencies 
There is a crossover in IBS with eating disorders as well. So the last thing we want is more restrictive type eating. And then the problem lies with how are you going to then reintroduce those foods? And that's quite a systematic, complicated process. So people end up on this diet for a long time, which is good for diagnosing intolerances, but it is actually um, quite bad for the gut microbiome. So it will actually reduce your gut health over a long period of time. And then the final issue around it, of course, is that IBS is very much like a puzzle. So the low FODMAP diet process, let's call it, is only one piece of that puzzle. So we need to look at IBS as a whole thing to really get to the bottom of it um, and look at other areas of nutrition, looking at people's relationship with food, looking at their mental health, their sleeping patterns, their movement. Um, so people do get very stuck, but essentially the, the next step after that diagnosis is to get that dietitian referral or access a dietitian in some format and that as I said, there's different ways to do that. And that's really interesting that you talk about it being a piece of the puzzle because I think often we want like a one-size-fits-all cure for lots of things. And I think when it comes to things like IBS, and, and you know, I, I'm not someone who's suffered from it, but I know from um, just speaking to people who do have it, um, it's not kind of an easy process to um, kind of work through, i.e. some people try FODMAP and it works for them and they do that with a dietitian, and they kind of come out the other side feeling quite positive about the results. For others, it's a little bit of a longer process. And it would be interesting to hear from you what other aspects you look at when it comes to treating IBS. I know you mentioned there about people's relationship with food. One thing that I really noticed just in myself, and this is not IBS related, but just generally digestion related is, you know, how present I am and how slowly I eat. If I find that I'm rushing meals and I'm eating very quickly, I can find that that's definitely a trigger for me. So I'd love to hear about the other aspects that you tend to look into when it comes to someone treating their IBS or just wanting to improve their their digestion. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, a very, very good tip that you've given everybody there is the, before the food even enters your gut, how are we going to expect your gut to actually digest it if you haven't even taken the time to chew it? You know, it's going to be more difficult. So there are lots of different things that we would potentially look at. But what I would say is there's so many potential things we can look at in IBS. When I now talk about all those different things, I would consider thinking about what is relevant to you the most because there'll be so much there that there'll be some things that maybe you're already doing and other things that are maybe really out of control for you and something that actually you need to really focus on. And that's going to be much more sustainable than thinking, okay, I'm going to do all of these things all at once. That's this is not going to work. So it is really, it's not a quick fix, as you've said. It is longer term. And you will get there. Having IBS is very common and you, you can manage it, but it, it takes some time. So some of the things we look at outside of this FODMAP diet, because it really is only one piece of the puzzle. And honestly, I don't use it with all my clients, to be honest. So the first thing I would say is fiber. So fiber often um, is like the nemesis in IBS because we sometimes patronize and you get told as IBS sufferers, oh, just eat more fiber, um, you know, have less fiber. And actually, that's not going to resolve symptoms because what a lot of people with digestive problems and not just IBS find is when you eat lots of fruits and vegetables, which is healthy, healthy for everybody else, your symptoms just get much worse or, um, you know, you just can't tolerate some of those foods. So you might have built up food fears actually around some of those foods in, in that part. Fiber is a lot more complicated than just eating um, more of it or less of it because there's different types of fiber. And Historically, we always used insoluble and soluble fiber, and that never really worked because solubility of fiber doesn't really predict how it's going to work in the gut. So if you've ever been told that by a tissue maybe years ago, which is what even I used to do, and I've only been qualified 11 years now, um, it won't work for you. 
But what we need to do is look at fiber in terms of the FODMAP content of it. So that doesn't necessarily mean you need to do a whole FODMAP diet. But if, for instance, we've got somebody who's got really severe constipation and we know that they need to eat more fiber, then the last thing we want to do is get them to eat fiber that, yes, it will soften their stools, it's going to help their bowels, but it's also going to create lots more gas and bloating and pain. That's, that process isn't going anywhere. So what you can do is look at low FODMAP sources of fiber, which works really well. So downloading things like a Mo- the Monash app, which is probably the most well-known app, um, and you can then just literally look in the fruits, vegetables and grains and see what foods are in them. And you're going to get the benefit of it softening your stools, but you're not going to get this excess gas. And then just doing it slowly over time and just working your way up. So fiber can be used in that way. Fiber can also be used though for loose stools. So again, we mistakenly think, oh, if I've got diarrhea, if I've got loose stools, I have to avoid all fruits and vegetables. But fiber, some types of fiber have got a role in actually thickening up our stools. So it actually helps slow the stool down. It helps loose stools. So we can, of course, use fiber in that aspect. And some really good supplements are things like psyllium husk or partially hydrolyzed guar gum. So they're two supplements you can get very cheaply off Amazon because I know some of these supplements are really expensive. Um, I'm talking things like five pounds for a huge tub of it's just fiber and you can add it into some of your foods or some of your fluids. So that fiber we need to use in a way that's going to really help our symptoms and not sort of oversimplify it. Then looking at things like fluid. So fluid, a lot of the time we are just told drink three liters of water a day or something really random. And it's such an arbitrary kind of figure because all of our fluid requirements are very different. But if we're not drinking enough fluid, again, regardless of our symptoms, we can end up quite bloated and quite constipated and um, quite fatigued if you are actually having loose stools and losing a lot of fluid. So with a fluid element, what you need to do is look at your weight and it's roughly around 35 um, mils per kilogram per day. And that's just a baseline figure. And then you can start to look at things like your urine color. Um, is it dark? You know, it should be like a straw color if it's, or lighter straw color, like champagne color, let's say. Um, and if it's darker than that, you're dehydrated look at your fluid patterns we go even deeper than that so some of my clients used to really confuse me I look at a food diet and think well they are drinking enough fluid why are they so constipated and actually they were not drinking fluid all day long and then getting home drinking that liter and a half to catch up and then they're probably up all night peeing um but then actually um they were dehydrated most of the day because our body can only hold on so much fluid at once so that's a couple kind of dietary quite simple things that we can look at and that doesn't necessarily need a dietitian looking over you to help you with that that's that's just some some minor changes out which we could implement on a small scale the other things then is looking at things around um our sleeping patterns so for anyone who's really interested in sleep i cannot recommend um matthew walker's why we sleep more it is the best book it's you will so ever good <laughs> i know so, i recommend that book all the time <laughs> it's an eye-opener because this, the ironic thing is we are still pretty much a world obsessed with calories or fat or exercise right. even. and now we are you know looking at mental health more maybe we're not as much as we should of course but it's becoming more of a thing to consider but no one ever talks about sleep and yet the fact that's like a fundamental basic of actual survival um and yet most people will get you know six or less hours sleep now how it directly links to gut health and IBS is we know things like the more times you wake up overnight is directly linked to the more symptoms you will have that week in someone who's got IBS. It's directly linked to poorer mental health, which we know will then impact how your gut functions. So 
looking at your sleep routine to make sure you're getting a good eight hours sleep per night. There is no medical anomalies out there who can get, you know, some people go, I thrive on five hours of sleep. That's not a thing. You might feel like this. Maybe you're going off caffeine and adrenaline, but there is nobody out there, to my knowledge, that that, that's a thing. Has to be eight hours a night. Um, And the reason why is because you then you haven't enough what we call sleep cycles overnight. So look at your sleep routine as well before you go to bed. If you are expecting your brain to go from work, Netflix, WhatsApp, whatever you're doing to just sleeping good, that it's just not going to happen. So with my clients, I try to build in like a one hour sleep routine. Um, And the idea in the first half an hour, they are getting ready for bed, brushing their teeth, hot shower, whatever it is. And then they're in bed half an hour before they want to go to sleep and they're reading a book. And that's just like a good wind down routine for going to sleep. So someone who's listening to this might think, actually, my sleep is really terrible. That's all I'm going to focus on for my IBS now. And that would be a really good starting point. Um, Movement is another one. I know you probably cover this a lot. But movement in terms of for IBS, I think a lot, again, around movement, we think about maybe the aesthetics of how someone looks or maybe calorie burning, which is quite sad because actually um, we've got so many other benefits to movement. Um, And that's why I call it movement rather than exercise because I feel like we've grown up in this generation where it's still quite a negative thing in some ways where it's getting better. Um, But it might be someone who um, goes to CrossFit three times a week and has got you know, this six pack abs or whatever. Uh, but actually in between times, they're just sitting at a desk hunched over in front of their computer all day. So actually most of the time, their movement's really poor. And we know that that will slow the gut down. It's going to reduce their mental health. It's going to change the microbiome in a negative way. So just trying to think about how you can move every day doesn't need to be intense. It could be a simple walk. Or if you've got a flare up that day of IBS, it could be just a stretches on the floor, something really gentle but just to move your body. Um, and the last kind of, I guess, pillar in the IBS treatment, uh, not treatment because we can't cure it, of course, but management toolbox is mental well-being. Um, and there's a whole scope of things that we can use. So even um, mental health medications are routinely used for, for managing IBS. Even if someone isn't diagnosed with anxiety or depression, the doctor will routinely prescribe these medications because we know the gut and the brain talk to each other. So that can help. Um we can look at more simple things. So for some people, simply doing things like meditation, mindfulness on a very regular basis can help just reduce how they react to stress because we can't always change our life or our job, um, but we can change how we react to stress. Um, and for some people, they need cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and that's, that's a specific type for people with IBS. Um, so there are therapists out there to train to treat IBS or manage it using CBT. Hmm. It's amazing because like that that kind of scope of stuff is so vast and it's, I guess, in some ways really promising that the toolbox is really big of things that people can try. It's not just like, oh, try this and it doesn't work. Oh, well, you know, there's lots of um, different ways in which people can tackle their IBS, which is which is great and come up with the best treatment plan for themselves um, to manage their symptoms. I think the one that I'm genuinely really interested in and I'd love to tap into this a little bit more is kind of the idea of... Um, the gut brain axis and the role that movement then plays in kind of helping with that. I know that there was some research that came out not that long ago about the benefits of yoga and IBS symptoms. Um, And I just really wanted to talk about whether you know um, what kind of exercise suits or is best for managing IBS symptoms. Is the CrossFit going to be okay? Is that something that's great? 
Or actually, is it kind of you're looking at more things that are going to downregulate the system, less intense on the body, more nurturing to the kind of uh, mind and body, I guess, at the same time? We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Yeah, a really, really good question because, again, there's lots of misconceptions around this that people with IBS should only do this really slow, um, you know, calm exercise. And actually, that's not true. So we don't actually have that solid research to suggest that somebody should only be doing yoga and should never do anything that's high intensity. Um, So that doesn't mean that it's also okay. I think it's very much that we just don't have the research specifically looking at IBS. But what I would say, the research that we do have, we've got the, we do have a good research study looking at yoga twice a week, reduces symptoms as much as the low FODMAP diet. And again, this is great for showing you that actually the diet is not the only thing that can have a significant outcome for someone. So yoga twice a week, we don't know exactly how it impacts IBS, but probably through the mindfulness, the gut brain access element of really reducing stress levels. It's quite a mindful um, act when you're doing it because you're really thinking about what your body is doing, um, how you're breathing, rather than having time to think about what we're doing tomorrow, later, problems, things like this. So that's probably how it has a benefit in IBS. But what I would say to you is if you hate yoga, because I know I personally, I don't hate it, but I find it really boring. Um, <laughs> I would be saying to you now is the time if you're going to start exercise at yoga, you can only do yoga and that's the one thing you should do. We do have that research showing yoga is good, but that we don't have research that other exercise isn't. There is other studies to show more moderate exercise. So things like even running, going for jogs is actually really beneficial for symptoms. Where we kind of like is a bit of a gray area is this really high intensity exercise. So maybe endurance athletes. Um, so if you wanted anyone listening, ever wanted to do an Ironman or anything like this or um, CrossFit classes, which are really high intensity because the only research that we've got that I know about is looking at what the gut um the gut function does in general so this isn't in an ibs specific population and some studies show that it actually speeds it up some studies show that it doesn't really impact it but of course some of these studies are looking at people who are actually really fit so maybe it doesn't impact them as much so it's really hard to draw a conclusion to say people with ibs should not do high intensity what i would suggest you do is if you're someone who already does high intensity great continue with it if it's not a problem but if you're someone that maybe wants to try it, um, just act with caution. Maybe um, get that, um, I don't know, that bike in the in the cycle class right at the back of the room and just say, oh, I've got an injury in case you do need to leave a bit early. Maybe exercise on an empty stomach first thing in the morning. Obviously drink fluids, but just to try and reduce some of that impact just in case um, and do it at a time where maybe you've used other methods to progress how well controlled your IBS is. Because we can't quite say green light or red light on that high intensity exercise that's so interesting look I think exercise has just so many benefits and uh, you know I'm definitely number one for banging the drum about guys stop focusing on it being just there for fat loss but I do also think that when it comes to the exercise that we choose some of us not all of us can be very trend-led and sort of think that we have to do the hardest form of exercise because it's probably and generally associated to fat loss for example when actually, if you take a step back, if you forget the trends, if you just go for what works best for you, often exercise can then look a little bit different. And I think trying different things, seeing what really works for you is so important. IBS or no IBS, you know, it's so important. Um, one thing I really wanted to ask you about, and I'm 
I'm genuinely fascinated by this. And you referenced this earlier about kind of, you know, IBS being really common. And I'm really interested by this because to me, that sort of is a bit of a red flag in terms of what's going wrong with us as a society that people, a huge number of people are suffering from digestive issues. And I wondered if you could expand a little bit on what we know is causing this, you know, in such large capacity. Because I look at things like, you know, I'm all for eating whatever food you like. And I genuinely, I, I really believe that. But I also think I'm more conscious now of eating a highly processed diet, for example. I'm more conscious of including uh, seasonal produce and a really varied diet in terms of the fruits and vegetables that I'm eating. And these are new things that I've sort of, you know, realized are, okay, there's research behind this, that, whatever. I'm going to start doing that in my own lifestyle. But I'm also, yeah, I'm concerned about why so many people are suffering from digestive issues. What do we know is causing this? And why is it so prevalent? The number one probably cause of this, I say probably because we don't know, we don't know exactly what causes IBS. Um, So um, I will answer this in a backwards, in more backward way than I thought I was going to. But the cause of IBS, we don't actually fully understand. So when we look at the research, it's based on, you know, asking people, oh, what, what was, you know, related to this onset? Um, so we know things like genetics can be linked. So it seems to run in families. We know things like stress, anxiety, any, any form of mental health. You can put it into, you know, a PubMed lit- literature search for research. And it seems to be related to digestive symptoms. Um, and then also things like antibiotics, anything that really disrupts the gut, essentially. Um, but we don't know 100% because we didn't have those people before they had IBS sitting in the lab waiting to test them to make sure it was directly you know, linked. So anything that can disrupt the gut. Now, when we look at what those things are, are antibiotic uses on the rise? I'm not sure about that exact data, but the one thing I do know is that mental health is on the rise. So my guess would probably be is directly linked to the mental health um, increases, um, unfortunately. Um, and it's, again, another a really difficult area to study, but it, it could be due to things like COVID, for instance. You know, a, a lot of people during that period of time, we went through a really stressful, dark period. Um, a lot of people were even working from home. They were isolated, becoming more of an online, you know, world. Now we're not connecting with people. Um, so all these things are potentially triggering IBS. Um, through the mental health kind of route and we know that IBS seems to be more prevalent in um, people who are aged around 20 to up to about 45 50 so in that sort of working um, kind of age group not the people who are over that age don't work but it just seems to be more prevalent during that that age group it's so interesting yeah I I think I mean, you know, if we could fast forward 20 years and have more research and more understanding about it, it would be fascinating to see how far we go in terms of understanding the changes in the gut microbiome and what really goes on there to, to make that shift happen. Um, but I think that the mental health thing is is really interesting. And it's so sad to think that, you know, poor mental health is, is um, so prevalent and then the ramifications of that and what that can do inside the body. And it just kind of, I guess, solidifies that idea that our gut and our brain are so so directly connected and um you know even me I think going back to that point I said about taking my time around meals you know even that's from for me been a mental health thing like I always have been someone that's rush 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 kind of do 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 and just taking time to like breathe before a meal and then eat and also take time while I'm eating has been such a huge game changer and I think that's more about my brain than it is about my stomach uh, I'm still eating the same foods, but how I digest them seems to be totally different just for taking that time to 
to do it in a more calm way, I guess. Um, I wanted to move on to more of a general conversation around digestion because I know there'll be a lot of people listening with IBS, but there might be some people who are just generally looking to optimize their, their digestion. We've talked about trigger foods for those with IBS, um, but just generally, are there known trigger foods for our digestion in terms of bloating, gas, um, poor digestion? And what foods would you say t people should tend to avoid if they're looking to optimize their digestion? I am so pleased you've asked this question because it is the opposite of what you think. Everybody focuses on what do we need to avoid? What do we need to restrict when it comes to gut health? And yet every research paper shows us it's more about what we need to add into our diets. It's mm. about variety. So we look yeah. at things like gluten. That's a complete fat, gluten-free diet. So only people are people like me who've got celiac disease that should be on this diet. So it is more to be honest to be adding, you know, adding things to the diet. Just because you had one processed meal or a takeaway or a pizza, that food is going to have zero impact on your actual gut. This is obviously now talking about the general population. Um, it's about the overall diet and lifestyle that's going to have the impact. So there was a really interesting study um, looking at, I think it was like over 11,000 people's um, gut diets and health and everything. And they showed that the, the best thing you can do is aim for around 30 different plant sources per week in your diet, which will help what we call the variety of microbiota. So things like your, the live things in your gut, the bacteria, the yeast, the fungus, things like this, which are linked to then good overall gut health. Um, so looking at trying to get variety is really, really key. So it's not necessarily things about like, oh, I need to change to this diet or that diet. It's about thinking, okay, so I'm having porridge for breakfast. I don't know, I always have porridge, I'm very boring, but just have porridge for breakfast. What can I add on to that today? Okay, so I normally just have that with a banana. Can I sprinkle some seeds on that? Can I have actually a few bits of nuts on it? How can you just add bits into it rather than always thinking about restricting? Um, that's that's probably my number one kind of thing because we just get so focused on it and even as soon as you google what diet should I be on it just always comes up as gluten and dairy which honestly that, that obviously there's other reasons why someone might not want to eat eat um, gluten for instance for celiac disease or dairy if they are vegan but that's a different conversation but these foods do not cause digestive problems for the majority of people um, so we're kind of focusing in the wrong way I guess the only thing I would say um only only thing I would say would be alcohol so alcohol is probably the one thing that I guess we routinely drink especially in the western world I know more people are now being um, reporting as being teetotal it's becoming like a more normal thing without having to be questioned a million times but mm. alcohol is a drug and yet you know most of us wouldn't sit at home at night um, doing lines of cocaine Yet we think it's perfectly normal to have a glass of wine every night thinking, oh, but you know, this is sophisticated. It tastes nice, but it's a drug. Um, it's a macronutrient, it's like the fat or carbohydrate, but we can't use it. It's a drug that our body then has to detox from. It impacts our health um, and it impacts our gut health by changing our microbiome. It can change how our digestive enzymes work. It can change our mental health, our sleeping pattern, even just from one drink. Um, so alcohol is probably the only, I guess, caveat to what I've just said in terms of just add more things into your diet. The, the thing would be alcohol and just be realistic about what goals you, you then make for yourself. I think people do need to be aware that there is no known safe amount of alcohol to drink. Um, it's all about drinking as little as possible. Um, with being realistic as always with these health goals yeah and I think that was actually one of my questions you know we we talked a lot today about different ways in which you can manage your IBS but I know that for a lot of people they are trying to manage their IBS whilst also 
having a life. And even if they haven't got IBS, they're probably trying to manage their health, their digestive system, their, uh, you know, optimal digestion, whilst also having a life, socializing, maybe having the odd drink. What's your approach to helping people to manage IBS or just general digestive health alongside still having a social life? Yeah, really good question. So with IBS, I try to explain this in two parts. So we have two goals. So the first goal, which is this initial short-term goal, is we just need to get symptom relief. Because when someone starts working with someone like myself, um, they have uncontrolled IBS. So they have diarrhea or constipation, they have bloating, pain and things like that. So if I say, you know, sure what, it's weekend, you drink what you want, um, you eat what you want, then we're not going to get anywhere. We do need to have a certain kind of level of restriction, which is always controlled because we always want to be careful we're not making things worse. But we do need to get to a good place where we're actually able to manage these symptoms. And then what typically happens with IBS is it's not like, and I don't mean to put anyone else down or, you know, and put IBS on this pedestal that, you know, it's the worst condition compared to anything else. But for instance, if at the weekend, you say you're trying to lose weight in the weekend, you just, and, and you that's your only goal, trying to lose weight you decide to go and drink too much alcohol or you're eating certain things, I don't know, that that change your calorie requirements and I'm not an expert in this, um, then the worst case scenario is you might gain some weight or you may not lose your weight goal that week. However, someone with IBS is going to be having diarrhea all day the next day or they're going to be having your know, stomach pain short a few hours after they eat that meal. So typically speaking, people when they have uncontrolled IBS aren't that keen to just do what they want and you know when things are uncontrolled but what we try to do is stage one control the symptoms and then we start to identify exactly what their triggers are through this low FODMAP process so that they're then only avoid they're getting a good symptom control by only avoiding certain foods rather than everything um, and then which is really important we need to work on gut sensitivity and that comes from looking at stress sleeping patterns movement and then typically then they don't need to be so restrictive with everything so it's kind of it's it's a bit of a process um, of somewhat of a balance. We need to be realistic to start with, but longer term they do have a lot more freedom when they know exactly what the triggers are, um, and their gut's not so sensitive. But I would say IBS is not a condition we can cure, so I don't think anybody with IBS is ever going to be able to go to um, I don't know traveling. Um, say they go traveling for a month and they just eat and drink what they want and they don't sleep for more than four hours a night, they're probably going to experience some really severe symptoms. That's it's never going to be that they can just do what they want and have no no problems. Yeah. General yeah. public is a little bit different. So if the general public are just thinking, how can I improve my gut health? You know, I'd love to reduce my risk of digestive conditions in the future. Then realistically, what you do occasionally it's not going to make any impact on your health overall it's about the general health of what you're doing it's the sort of thing if you go to the gym regularly and then suddenly you have a week off it's probably not going to have that much of an impact on you and that's the same with diet um, and lifestyle in general so please don't get too focused on it because then it becomes almost like a form of um, this disordered eating uh, because we're so focused on it and you know we get quite anxious about it and that that's not normal um that's not good either. Kirsten, one thing I'm really interested by, and I know that it's one thing that you hear is like, coffee's bad for us, we need to cut down on coffee. But I'd love to hear if there's a relationship between coffee and IBS and what advice you tend to give to your clients when it comes to consuming it. Yeah, thank you for bringing this one up. So 
Coffee is actually really good for gut health in general. So I definitely wouldn't want to blanket ban everybody with IBS who we know could do with any kind of gut boost from taking something which could be fine. So coffee, it's got the active ingredient in it, it's caffeine. And that's the one which we we typically drink coffee for to get this kind of um, increased boost. Now, it really depends on the person. So some people will suffer with anxiety. Now, coffee doesn't cause anxiety, but it can worsen anxiety. So if you are finding that you are, have got quite uncontrolled anxiety or you may be anxious that day, which it happens to me, I've got anxiety, I will then cut back on coffee. I won't drink it with the caffeine in it because it will just worsen that situation. So it's about maybe changing your intake depending on how you're feeling or what your mental health is like. However, ca- coffee can be very good for people who've got who've got more constipation type um, symptoms because the caffeine itself can be a stimulant and that can actually help open their bowels. So if you've got IBSC, which is constipation dominant one, then actually having a coffee first thing in the morning, especially when our bowels would typically open, then it, it, that can really help thing, move things along. Um, but if you have maybe looser stools, you might want to just try cutting back. And because I don't have any black and white data to say exactly how much somebody should have, um, I don't want you to just cut it out altogether if you're someone that maybe drinks two or three cups per day. But really just start by maybe reduce it down to two, then one to see if it actually helps looser stools. The other thing as well to consider about coffee and specifically this caffeine is that actually uh, it can have a really long what we call half-life. So in some people it can still be in their system, you know, up to 10 hours even at some situations after they've actually drunk the, the coffee. So if you're having a cup of coffee, maybe two o'clock, three o'clock, thinking, you know, it's not it's ages before bed actually then it's going to impact the quality of your sleep and that just means that your gut health will be worse directly from the sleep so if to kind of summarize i'd say if you're going to have coffee it's not a blanket people with ibs can't have it i would say tailor it depending on what your mental health is doing what type of ibs you have um, and just think about just having it that first thing in the morning now Interestingly with coffee, the reason I said it's actually particularly good for gut is not just because some people could do with the caffeine stimulant to actually open their bowels, but it actually is really high in what we call polyphenols, which are can have a, like an antioxidant type impact. And they've also got, um, they're a type of prebiotic, so they feed our gut bacteria. So coffee is actually very good for our gut health. And so I definitely wouldn't ban anyone from it. And if you are sensitive to caffeine, what you can do is just simply switch over to decaf because you will still get then the benefits from these polyphenols without having any kind of reaction from the caffeine. Great tip. So I can still enjoy my coffee, yay. (laughs) Absolutely. My final question for you is around um, there being lots of products that claim to help with things like bloating and digestion. I mean, it's such a black market when it comes to these things that I even get... um, you know, notification on Instagram and um, spammed with adverts for greens that help with bloating and all that sort of stuff. So what would you say are the red flags to look out for when it comes to sort of knowing what might be a bit of a con uh, when it comes to products that kind of say they target digestion and bloating? Yeah, um, so I'd say 99% of them are absolute fads, cons. Um, anyone, um, when I go through a couple of examples in a minute, please don't feel bad if you've ever been, um, you know, conned by the, these products because when you've got IBS, you're in such a low place and there's no one helping you, you will pay anything and try anything and your own, you know, knowledge and sort of, you know, common sense goes out of the window completely. So it's really normal for people to be, you know, conned into these things. But the red flag is 99% of the time it is total rubbish because I'll tell you now, 
they contact me all the time wanting to do brand endorsements and things like that and they have no evidence behind them. There aren't actually that many gut health supplements on the market that are going to help. The ones that do will make minor improvements. There are specific probiotics that can they can help but they're not going to give you this overnight um, detox or whatever else they claim. That That's not a thing. It, it's, it may help. They'll use words things like it may help or towards something, those kinds of words. Look to see if they have a registered dietitian so it must be registered dietitian. Be very careful um, about where the product's coming from because unfortunately um, the term dietitian um, in different countries means different things. In the UK, you have to be um, have a degree and be registered to be a registered dietitian. And the reason why I'm saying that that's important is because we legally, because we would lose our license otherwise, we can only say things that have scientific backing behind them. So if you see a registered dietitian saying something, then either they put their entire career on the line or it's factual. So look for those um, and just look for who's promoting it. So if it's influencers or if it's people who just don't have any qualifications, especially things like around the functional medicine, this kind of thing. Um, and if it looks too good to be true, it, it generally, generally is. Um, but by all means, um, contact if anyone wants to they can always contact me on instagram there's any specific products that they're thinking it looks really good i'm always happy to check it out for you as well brilliant are there any that you can reference that tend to be the most common ones that people fall for um i'm just trying to think with the ones so the ones not i'm not going to say specific names but definitely there's a lot of these gut detoxes or gut resets about at the minute that i'm seeing and honestly i'm even now baffled about how they even came up with the concept of a gut detox i mean what does that even mean because a detox in my mind is to get rid of toxins, but in your gut, there shouldn't be any toxins because your liver and your kidney is getting rid of these. Um, and so I'm, I don't really know what they're on about. Sometimes I'll say things like they're going to get rid of all the bacteria, but the last thing you want is all your bacteria. You know, you want your bacteria in your gut is good gut bacteria. Um, so a lot of them just tend to be quite um, products that cause a lot of um, laxative type effects. Um, or there are some around um, basically fasting. Um, and fasting is not good for gut health. So there are different types of fasting. So we, we some of them are like the 12-hour fast, which is essentially just when you stop eating in your evening meal and then you don't eat in the evening, go to bed, and then you have your breakfast. So that, that's pretty normal kind of human routine. That's not a particularly fancy way of eating. Um, but there are other fasts where people will say, oh, we need to fast for three days, four days. And we know people, if you've got IBS and you don't eat regularly, it can make symptoms actually much worse. But initially, you might feel good because there's nothing in your gut. So you might think, this is great. I feel fantastic. But it's because your gut's not doing anything. But as soon as you start eating again, it's going to be worse than it was before. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Kirsten, I could chat to you for ages. Uh, I'm so grateful for your time. And it's been really interesting to learn a little bit more about IBS. I know that it's something that a lot of my followers have messaged me about. And it's been great to get you on. Um, I guess if anyone has any questions, they can come and find you on Instagram, like you said. We'll put Kirsten's links to her Instagram and her website in the show notes. And yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. And I really hope that anyone out there of IBS has gained some real kind of insights about what they can do. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time. Insanity Group.